Hello, Riley. Hey. Are you? Have you been looking for some mustard lately? <laughs> mustard? Actually, not a word of a lie. A woman just moved into my neighborhood who is from Boston, moving back to Canada, and she brought me a package of my favorite mustard in the world. Let me guess. Let me guess. Mustard from Gilboa Foods and Fruits. Connoisseurs of mustards, tapestries, and baby lion cubs. No, you can't traffic in that kind of animals. You'll you can thrilled. when you live in Gilboa Foods and Fruits world. Gilboa Fruits and Foods, redefining the boundaries of what's right and wrong since 1923. So, Dan, if you continue to weave the myth of Gilboa Fruits, you have to come up with a, a failed Gilboa Fruits theme park that opened in the 70s and closed one year later. I've got it. Knifeville. Yeah, Knifeville. It was it was the razor's edge. But shouldn't everything be fruit related if the rides are... How do you, how do you cut fruit with a knife? Come on, Riley. Get with the program. I don't like Knifeville. I don't. It sounds like a horror movie that was shot on a video cam. Neither did anyone else, else, and the park closed. People are going to tune us out because we're babbling fools. Okay, well, look, speaking of babbling fools, do I have a story for you uh, in today, or maybe for some listener tonight's episode? Although I have a feeling after uh, my last episode where I talked about uh, the real exorcism of Roland Uh I don't know if many people are listening to our show at night anymore. Do you know I always listen to my podcasts at night? I don't. I listen to them in the car. I listen to them sometimes when I'm walking the dog, but the ones that I really focus on are always listened to at night. Okay. I also have sex at night mostly. Oh, I didn't need to know that. I really was hoping to never learn what time of day you did your dirty business. At night. Great. Hey, uh, speaking of dirty business, (laughs) Riley, speaking of dirty business... Uh, and this isn't dirty business at all. You know what's kind of nice? What? We have viewers. I don't know if you've you've seen this, but we're getting a whole pile of viewers from, we've mentioned this before, all over the world. Uh, Belgium, Finland. Bhutan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Bhutan. And, and South Africa now. Like a, quite weird. a nice following from South Africa. So to all our South African listeners... Uh, welcome to the weird. Thanks for joining on. Hey, send us a message and let us know how you even found. I don't understand how this thing ripples out Me neither. Uh, into the world and, and you get followers uh, in all these different places. So I do have a fun story for you. And this is another sort of, well, this is actually maybe one of the better known stories, I think, that I've covered in the last three seasons. It's not that everyone will know the details of it, but I think everyone will know the topic, the subject of our story uh, in today's episode, and it is... I know why, too. Also, because it's the, the theme of a popular disco song. Well, that's right. So, uh, we are going to be covering the mystery of Gregory Rasputin in today's episode. There was a certain man in Russia long ago. He was big and strong in his eyes a flaming glow. Most people looked at him with terror and with fear. But to Moscow chicks, he was such a lovely dear. There, that's the first stanza. More than 100 years after his death, Gregory Rasputin, or the Mad Monk, as some people like to call him, Riley, is still a figure that conjures up discussion about his life. One of the most mysterious figures of the 20th century, Rasputin's reputation and supernatural-seeming influence 
over the Romanov family and the Russian Empire as a whole remains a captivating story. I'm captivated. Just look at me. Riley, who was the real man behind this fantastic story? What is real and what is myth? And I'm going to be honest with you. In preparing for this, there were a lot of things that I thought I knew about him that I I had completely wrong. And there's other things that I thought were just facts that are actually myth. They're not real. That being said, there's still a lot of really strange stuff about this guy that's just plain weird. And isn't there like some kind of weird occult stuff too? Spooky wicka wicka woo? um, Yes, there is. Good. But it depends on your perspective. And I'll get into that a little bit more, but it, it depends on what side of the fence you you were with him. Either he was spooky occult or he was touched by God. Oh, good. How controversial. He was extremely controversial. Oh. So Rasputin's real name was actually Gregory Yefimovich. Got that? Wrote it down. Good. He came from perhaps like the least promising background possible. Uh, he was born to a peasant family in the Siberian village of Pokrovskoy. And it's like one of the most remote places on earth. And we've talked about Siberia before, actually, this season, at the beginning of the season with the cannibal island. island and all that. It's a vast, vast, vast wasteland. And we're talking about it at a time, uh, you know, about 130-ish years ago, where travel is, is and communication is very difficult. All right, so some historians believe that Rasputin's parents had seven other children, but tragedy struck and every single one of those babies passed away prematurely. Not weird, especially at that time in history and where, again, where they're living and their socioeconomic status, babies died a lot. And this absolutely had an impact on the people in the community and the children that did end up surviving. Every single baby but him. Yeah, so some suggest that there was a ninth daughter born and that Rasputin was very close to her, perhaps unnaturally, but there is little evidence to support that. In fact, there's very little evidence and hard facts about his childhood. Okay. So Rasputin was, from what we know, the only child to survive into adulthood. And by the time he had reached the age of 15, his behavior had earned him the nickname Rasputin which is Russian for someone who engrosses engrosses themselves in debauchery. Like, I'm surprised no one has called you Rasputin. Oh, they have, I'm sure. What are you eating right now? Lemon pie. Well, there we go. You're indulgent. It's delicious. Looks good. Around 1887, he married a local peasant girl named Praskovia, and they had several children together, three of which would die young. While plowing one day, he had a vision of a saint, which he interpreted as a sign that he should devote his life to matters of the spirit. Ah. A combination of all these events may have motivated Rasputin to make a pilgrimage to a monastery in 1892. You know what? I had no idea he was ever married. I thought he was a swinging bachelor. And has like children that survived. In fact, one of them ended up immigrating to the United States. And I'll get into her story a little bit later. Wow, cool. Mm -hmm. So while there, Rasputin reportedly went through the motions of work and prayer like all the other pilgrims. But he also spent a lot of time outside the monastery with a hermit who converted him to a fundamentalist version of orthodoxy that included vegetarianism and continuous penitence for sin. Something I highly encourage you to do, Riley. 
I should. You're right. I got nothing. I, I, I have no comebacks on that. I should. Why don't you tell the good listener what your shirt says right now? Surly. Hmm. It's a bike company. Well, and, and now we've just given them a, free publicity. Oh, Surly. If you're looking to uh, invest in a show that's big all over the world, uh, we are the podcast for you. Surly. Making angry people get around from point A to B since 1996. Surly. Huh? Okay. Okay. So after his conversion, Rasputin wandered Russia as a hermit. Some called him a monk or thranik, uh, which in Russian translates to a wanderer or, or pilgrim, though he held no official position in the Russian Orthodox Church. The self-proclaimed monk was not popular with the local clergy, but he was very influential with the peasants. Mm-hmm. He had a magnetic personality and a very striking appearance a coarse oval face with a long nose and a heavy black beard thick eyebrows and small close-set gray eyes and deep sockets i'll I'll share there'll be lots of pictures on facebook and instagram of this and, and take a look at him he's a he is a compelling man to look at I've seen many, many pictures of him, and I agree. Well, didn't you have sort of a naughty magazine that was just filled with pictures of Rasputin? I had to buy that one in Mexico. He often returned to his family in time to help out with the planting and harvest in the town. But as time went by, his visits became less frequent. While he was on the road, he continued to develop his gift for charming people. He could talk just about anyone into putting them up into their home and giving them free food as he preached to them. Somewhere along the way, a rumor spread that he was a mystical healer. Never one to walk away from an opportunity like that, Rasputin decided to start treating injured and ill farmers with a mixture of faith healing, laying on of hands, scriptural teaching, and occasional common sense advice about getting lots of rest and drinking plenty of fluids. I had no idea he was any of those things. Well, can, uh, let me ask you this question then. What what sort of impression do you have of him? What When you think of Rasputin, who do you think he was or is? Oh, I'm so ashamed to admit this, but most of what I know about Rasputin is from the song. Well, I think that, I don't think there's any shame in that. This is why I was saying at the top of the cast that I think a lot of people know Rasputin. They know the name, but they don't actually know his story. Well, they say in the song, though, you know, there lived a certain man in Russia long ago he was big and strong, and his eyes a flaming glow. Most people looked at him with terror and with fear, but to Moscow chicks, he was such a lovely deer. So I assumed he was just a swinging bachelor. He was that. But he wasn't, sorry, he wasn't a bachelor. He was right. swinging, though. Right. And he was a healer. Rasputin didn't drop the act when he returned home. Every time he came back to his family's house, he insisted on mandatory prayer and religious services that could last for hours. What a joy kill, eh? Can you imagine? Oh, great. Rasputin's back, everybody. I was raised Catholic. You know that. I'm not a Catholic anymore, but I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. And every year I would dread Easter. Because Easter was these long, arduous masses, one right after the other. You go on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But like I never had to do that. Like, you're so masked out by the end well, of it. Well, and this, and this is even more, right? We're talking about the Orthodox Church, which oh, God, is a yeah. bit more regimented, and he's of a fanatical sort of brand of this church, so it's even more than that. Mm-hmm. It's daily. It's not just set at the big holidays. 
So often these rituals would get in the way of like the actual farm work that they had to do because these aren't people that were looking to relax. These are people that are looking to do work that's going to keep them alive, sustain their community. And this guy is coming in when he would come home and he would demand that everything stop so that they, you know, do the right ritualistic things to honor God, I guess. He celebrated like every holiday, Saints Day, birthdays, anniversaries, special occasions by forcing everyone to fast and kneel in prayer all evening. What a super fun guy. Right? Ugh. Meanwhile, his non-religious activities were getting strange. At some point during this time as a hermit, Rasputin had developed a habit of talking to himself. Though genuine religious hermits usually took vows of silence, this guy would often be found having full-blown conversations, like a two-way conversation with himself out loud. Mm -hmm. So maybe he had a little bit of mental illness. Oh, possibly. Yeah. Hmm. They also say that conversing with yourself is a a sign of high intelligence. So who knows? I would argue that this guy was extremely intelligent. So he's that part of it. Okay. I, I would, I would think that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rasputin also had a number of disturbing facial and body tics that made people around him nervous. While distracted or talking, his arms would jerk and his hands fluttered wildly. Sometimes his whole torso would seize momentarily while he made a particularly emphatic point. You know, when I was reading about that, I was thinking it reminded me of your favorite show, Seinfeld and Kramer. You have you are a lot like Kramer. You're so awful to me in every regard and this is an example of that i think our show would do really well with a laugh track my son claims that he doesn't like seinfeld anymore because it has a laugh track laugh tracks are a really dated thing aren't they they sure are yeah they they're this forced like you you feel like you're you're an outcast if you don't like participate like if you're not part of it it coached you along it told you where you were supposed to laugh that's why some of those old shows by the way I um there it's fun I don't know if you've ever seen this like happy days and things like that where they or any of the 80s sitcoms but there's been a few where they took out the laugh track so it's a stripped down audio it's not funny well no they weren't funny right those shows aren't funny they're not funny at all Seinfeld is though I I I would argue that it's still funny I just found the characters unpleasant and to a degree that I just couldn't enjoy the show I found them too frustrating honestly no word of a lie. You've told everyone this before. Yeah, okay. I know. It's and I, I accept that other people like it. I just don't. A lot of angry Seinfeld fans out there. So after the first few preaching sessions, the men of Pokrovskoy learned to live with his eccentricities for their own safety. When Rasputin felt he was being mocked, he had a reputation for plunging into the crowd and pummeling as many men as he could while screaming damnation at them. However, Despite his alarming behavior, Rasputin managed to curry favor with some important people who would ultimately help him get to the next chapter of his life. Mm-hmm. Given the relative inactivity of Western Siberia, I didn't know, I think we talked about this, but it's not a hub for, uh, you know, uh, anything exciting. Rasputin started attracting crowds. He was the show out there. Lacking a local church, Rasputin started holding religious services in his own house, complete with healings and miracles. By 1902, the crowds at these events had gotten too large to fit into his home, so Rasputin took his show on the road again, this time forever. He set off on an overland journey to a monastery in Kiev. 
When he finished a year of religious instruction there, partly as a student and partly as a teacher, he again crossed the Russian steppe to Kazan, where he started meeting with bishops and aristocrats. There, Rasputin displayed the confidence that he'd honed living by his wits as a hermit, and he ended up taking over religious instruction at the seminary. He must have impressed somebody important because within a year he was on his way with letters of introduction to the capital at St. Petersburg, where he would rub elbows with the rulers of the Russian Empire. My God, he preached his way to the top. And pretty fast. Yeah. Like that, think about how dynamic and I'm gonna say hypnotizing almost in a way he would have to be to have people yeah. usher him through that quickly. And again, he's from nowhere. He's a nobody. That is really amazing. It is. Rasputin arrived in St. Petersburg at one of the most dangerous moments in its 200-year history. In 1904, Russia was badly, badly losing a vicious war with Japan. Men across the country were being drafted, and estates were being taxed to support a Far East conflict that seemed to be the Tsar's pet project. Many people were starving, living in extreme poverty, and had little hope of a better future under the Tsar. Bad times. When the Russian fleet was destroyed at Tsushima, riots erupted in the streets. Active revolutionaries like Lenin turned food riots and labor disturbance into a full-blown revolt against the monarchy, which was swiftly put down with volleys of rifle fire from returning troops. The revolts were eventually quelled but things remained uneasy in Russia. And this is all before the First World War even began. I had no idea that Russia was ever in, at war with Japan before. Yeah, it, it, a lot of people don't realize that. So there was a Russo-Japanese war, and uh, the Russians lost hmm. to Japan. But that's when a Japan was starting to emerge as a real world power. Interesting. I had no idea. God, we fight a lot as a race. Good Lord. That's, yeah. We're fighty fucking race. During this time period, Rasputin was quite busy ingratiating himself with the local aristocrats and members of the royal family, or at least he was trying to ingratiate himself. The Russian courtiers seemed to have had a very low opinion of him. They called him the Muddy One, which was a play, and in Russian, which was a play on his name. Rasputin's life as a hermit and his low-born mannerisms, not to mention his tics, irritated Russia's nobility, and his obvious efforts to schmooze with the Romanovs alienated him further. Even more controversial, Rasputin was adored by a cult-like group of women he called his, and I quote, little ladies. Oh dear. And this cult would only continue to grow in size. So he was like the Beatles. Yeah, like for real. Now, I was going to ask you something else because you said he rose up really fast through the ranks. It's like all about Eve. There's no way that you can go that far that fast without making a lot of enemies. There must have been a lot of people who were like, who the fuck is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll get into that in a moment. I knew that you would. So they would, so these women would fight, get this, they would fight over his, and there's countless examples of this. They would fight over his dinner scraps, kiss his fingers after he just licked them, regularly sleep with him despite the fact that he'd proudly go months without bathing. This guy was gross. Ew. Well, I guess he, I shouldn't say he's not handsome. He, I, I guess he is in a way, uh, but he's not, you know. Oh, but he's like that Bagwam Razniche person, you know, like, ugh. Yes. God. 
Despite all the unappealing details about Rasputin, he still managed to charm his way into the court of Nicholas II. He won over the then-pregnant Serena Alexandra with several flattering prophecies about her unborn child. Because of this, the latent dislike of Rasputin in aristocratic circles flared up into open hatred. The tension only grew more serious after the birth of the heir apparent Alexei Romanov, when his mother turned to Rasputin for treatment and advice on managing the young prince's hemophilia. And for those who don't know, hemophilia is uh, its an inherited blood disorder. Essentially, it means your blood doesn't clot. There was a girl in my school with hemophilia and she didn't have to go to gym class. Yes, and uh, because any, what we would consider a minor injury, like a, a bruise, could actually end up resulting in death. The prince's condition was a constant, as you can imagine, source of anxiety to his parents. The pivotal moment came when Alexei suffered a small accident in which he bruised his hip. And again, in a normal individual, this would quickly clot and, and you wouldn't think twice about it. But for Alexei, within a couple of weeks, he was at death's door. Oh my God, from bruising his hip. The inter- he had a re- it was a really bad case. The internal bleeding produced a large swelling on his hip and his doctors could do nothing but monitor his progress, which they basically just did by prodding him with their fingers and feeling around. That's basically all they were able to do for him. They should have gotten a leech. <laughs> In desperation, Alexandra wrote to Rasputin and begged for his help. Rasputin immediately replied, and this is a quote, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. Rasputin's advice was followed, and Alexei improved and recovered. Ah, ah, ah. Alexandra now had absolute confidence in Rasputin, and he became the most influential person in her entourage. Could he have been luckier? Right. So, and just to back up a little bit too. So this guy comes into St. Petersburg with a lot of fanfare. And he is obviously not initially introduced to the Romanovs, but they hear about him. And the Romanovs had a history of reaching out to sort of mystics. We've talked about this before. We're in a time in history where the belief in the occult and mysticism was widely popular. Mm -hmm. And this family was no different than many other families like, you know, like like across Europe and North America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were looking to believe. They already had, uh, they, they had already suspended their disbelief of the impossible. I love two stories about people who have no business being at court or, in, or, or part of the glitterati, who managed to become part of the glitterati and what happens to them as a result. One of the best stories in the world about that, and I'm not going to go into it because that's not the nature of our podcast, but mm-hmm. is the story of Truman Capote, oh, yeah. who became the darling of New York society. And that's what he wanted. He came from very poor beginnings, right? He came from I didn't know the that. South. And, you know, because of In Cold Blood, he suddenly was everywhere and he was writing and everybody loved him. And then he fell out of favor with them and it almost destroyed him. And I love, I just love stories though about people like that who want nothing more than to be part of that, to be, to have something that they never had, that they want so desperately. Yeah. And he's obviously another example of this. He is, and it's tough with him to know, and again, as the story progresses, you'll see why. There are aspects of this 
this person that um, you you're, you're rooting for him because he's very much the underdog. But then mm-hmm. there's another part to his personality that just seems like he was a bit of a predator. Yeah, you know. So Rasputin gained great influence on the Romanovs' lives by his alleged ability to soothe the prince and relieve, if not cure, his illness. While his method of helping the boy is debated, uh, you know, obviously there are some people that that stand by the fact that it's, it was some sort of supernatural power he had. Others, I think, can pretty convincingly, you know, explain it through science. Uh, what you can't debate is the psychological effect he had on the Romanovs was huge. Rasputin sent a second telegram that said he'd prayed to God for the boy's sake and God had granted his prayer. When Alexei began to recover, it is said that Alexandra's faith in the monk became unshakable and there was no force in the world that would ever alienate the, quote, old man from the friendship of the imperial family. By all accounts, the mad monk was able to ease Alexei's suffering. The Serena credited Rasputin's mystical powers while others have suggested that he simply hypnotized the boy. But the more likely explanation is that Rasputin's presence and prayers had a calming effect on Alexandra, which was in turn passed along to Alexei, allowing him to recover more quickly. Okay. Another crucial factor may be that Rasputin forbade other treatments, including, get this, aspirin, which, you know, is a blood thinner. Yeah. And at the time, the early 20th century, this was a a new fangled drug and they were using it on everything i know about the history of aspirin yeah it was incredible and it's like the last drug you'd ever well it's you never give aspirin to anyone with clotting issues yeah it 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 makes it worse so the fact he you know said no to this he didn't have a scientific reason for saying it he got lucky again right but that probably also helped this boy survive so by 1907 he was a regular caller at the palace and felt confident enough to advise the Tsar on matters of state. Okay, so he's not just the healer for the, the little boy. He's now yeah. telling them how they should run the empire. Jesus Christ. The Tsar and his wife were prolific letter writers whose correspondence shows their genuine affection, constant worry over their son, as well as references to Rasputin and his influence on their decision making. You can actually find a lot of these letters uh, written uh, by the Tsar and his wife. The ones I found were specifically from World War One. You can take a look at them. One, and they've been translated. One letter dated September 9th, 1916 is notable for revealing Nicholas was reluctant to appoint a man named Protopopov to the Ministry of the Interior. Protopopov, I love saying that name. Protopopov. It's such a great name. Was Rasputin's recommendation. And Nicholas wrote to his wife that, quote, Our friends' opinions of people are sometimes very strange. Nonetheless, Nicholas did carry out the appointment. Because Rasputin had told him to. You know what? I had no damn idea that Rasputin was in the... 20th century or 21st yeah. 20th century. I thought he was way back in the 1800s. I thought he was old timey. Yeah, his daughter would have been alive when you were born. I'm not sure that what year she died. And but he would have been alive when my grandmother was alive. Yeah. Yeah. While it's unclear exactly how much influence he had in, in that you know political arena, he had enough to make nobles feel threatened. 
And meanwhile, gossip about Rasputin's licentious behavior swirled throughout St. Petersburg. He drank heavily, visited brothels, and was rumored to seduce society ladies by preaching that only through sin could they find salvation. Oh, God, it's so predator. He ran afoul of the Russian Orthodox Church. The Tsar received secret police reports documenting his debauchery, true to his name. Rasputin's interpretation of the Bible had always been unusual, but now powerful figures within the church were demanding a trial for heresy. Specifically, he was accused of holding beliefs similar to a suppressed Orthodox cult from Siberia, which, if true, would have seen him defrocked and possibly imprisoned. A governess for the royal family, horrified that Rasputin was allowed to visit the Tsar's daughter in their nursery while the girls were in their nightgowns, accused him of belonging to the Klists, a group that split from the Russian Orthodox Church in the late 17th century. The Klists had, and that's a t- that You gotta say that right. You can't say that one wrong because you're gonna open a whole world of hurt. You know what I mean? You've got to say that one right. The Klists <laughs> had secret cells all over Russia and were rumored to whip themselves and engage in ecstatic rituals that sometimes turned into orgies. Dan, you know, yeah. earlier in the, just about a minute ago, you mentioned that they had um, received re- reports detailing his debauchery. Yes. D- do you maybe have those and you could read some t- right now? No. Oh, just a a little. um. Unlike you, Riley, I'm classy. Rasputin's belief that salvation could only be found through sin and repentance had similarities to Clist teachings, but there is no evidence that he actually was a member of the sect. This is all just people, you know, this is speculation. His daughter, who I've mentioned a few times, claimed that Rasputin had looked into the Klist sect, but had eventually rejected it. I'm doing a very good job. I know, I just Klist, like you can't make a typo, man. You just can't. (laughs) (laughs) Nicholas refused. Nicholas refused to banish the holy man from the royal court. And he is quoted as saying, Better ten Rasputins, he told his prime minister, than one of the empress's hysterical fits. So he was willing to keep this guy on. And there's some speculation that perhaps Nicholas wasn't at, hadn't bought into it as heavily as uh, Alexandra had. Mm-hmm. But in order to keep this woman happy, and she was a very powerful figure. I know. In order to keep her happy, he just let this guy stay on. Right. I get that. I get that. Sometimes it's just better to have peace at home. <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure. Your mother-in-law can come stay with us. Just calm down. So when he beat the rap in 1908, Rasputin's prestige only grew. He was even accused of rape, but he was never removed from power. There was never any threat to him being displaced and moved out of the palace or imprisoned for that matter. Mm. By 1911, most of his enemies had either fallen out of favor with the Romanovs or had been exiled. By 1912, the odd, sometimes violent monk from Siberia was arguably the main power broker in Russia. My God. Now, look, life in any court can be dangerous. Maybe not Maybe not so much now, but back then, if you propped yourself up over the wall, uh, you ran the risk of 
pissing the wrong people off. People are vying for power and position. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, depending on the situation, sometimes it's even for the throne itself. But certainly to be the advisors, to be the people of uh, that would uh, have the ear of the king or the queen... That was a, those were dangerous positions to have. Game of Thrones, man. Game of Thrones. And we think politics are bad now. It was literally a, a game of life or death uh, when you put yourself into those situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at a man for all seasons. Look at all the stories we have throughout history of, of that very thing. So in the Russian court, there was a lot of jostling for position, influence, and power. And when a peasant manages to posi- position himself as close to an absolute monarch, as Rasputin did, his enemies will start wishing he was dead. And this is where the story gets even weirder. I'm so excited. The first known attempt. Do you know what I love? I love that when you just said the story gets even weirder, you had to shift in your chair and you had to get into that weird position. That was good. You got your, I'm upside down. You're physically ready now to divulge the weirdness. So the first known attempt on Rasputin's life, or at least the first one anybody knows about, came in the summer of 1914, on a day in July, when Alexandra summoned him to the palace to discuss a threat of war from Austria. Though he always rushed to the Tsarina's side when she called, this day Rasputin stopped in the street to give money to a person whom he thought was an old beggar woman, but the beggar was actually a disguised ex-follower of a fellow monk named Iliodor. While Rasputin was fishing through his pockets, the woman produced a dagger and struck him just above the navel. Apparently, she stabbed him all the way through his gut. Like, not through to his backside, but like what should have been a death blow. And a, and a really painful way to die. Because it's hard to stop the bleeding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead of falling down or going into shock from the pain, Rasputin ran. There are a lot of witnesses to this, what I'm about to tell you. He ran to a nearby growth of trees, grabbed a stick, which he then used to beat the fleeing woman. Oh, wow. Iliador then immediately went to hiding, and Rasputin spent the next few weeks recovering from his injuries and didn't seem any worse for wear afterwards. Did the woman get away? No, no. He beat her like he beat her with the stick. I don't I don't think I don't think he killed her, but she would have been apprehended. Oh, good. OK, he was he had the protection of the state. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Many other attempts were made on Rasputin's life in the following years. But in every single case, he was either completely unhurt or only mildly injured. Mm. And there were some serious ones, poisonings, like there, a number of different assassination uh, attempts. This uncanny ability to avoid death had some, lovers and haters alike, to start to believe that there was something supernatural about Rasputin. Aha! Those who supported, followed, and worshipped him took this to be a sign that he was the instrument of God and was untouchable. He had God's protection. Yeah, yeah, of course they would. His detractors, however, saw this as evidence that he was evil and possibly an emissary of the devil. I can't tell you how many times people have thought that of me. Because of your tattoos. (laughs) Oh, my God. The next few years were an absolute nightmare for Russia. The First World War, which started in 1914, was grinding up their men. And worse than others, the Russians were were not having a good good go at that war. Mm -hmm. And popular opinion of the war at home quickly turned toward 
peace at any price. But through it all, the aristocracy was in deep denial. The Romanovs and their courtiers firmly believed that the war could be won and talk of surrender was grounds for banishment from the court. Rasputin, who obviously came from a different background, saw things differently. And this is interesting because it's in contrast to everything else that we've been sort of talking about for the last few minutes. Uh By 1916, he was secretly conspiring with some of the more realistic members of the court to force the Tsar into negotiations with the Germans and Austrians. He was that involved in their politics? Yes. Dear God. Okay. But one of the conspirators' meetings was abruptly broken up when a relative of the Tsar, Prince Felix Yusupov, walked in on them unannounced. Later, Yusupov would write that he and Rasputin had spent long evenings together talking about politics and that the former peasant had tried to talk him into supporting peace on the grounds that it was the only way to save the monarchy and avoid a civil war. But as far as the prince was concerned, this was treason, and he was resolved to do something about it. Mm. And to this point, Rasputin had never met an adversary as powerful as a prince. Now he has a big gun going after him. Though they often met for talks, Yusupov despised Rasputin. As he later wrote, with his kaftan, baggy breeches, and great top boots, he looked exactly what he was, a peasant. He had a low, common face. Of the meeting Yusupov broke up, he said he saw Rasputin in the group, surrounded by seven shady-looking men. Four of them were of a distinctly Jewish type. The other three were fair and curiously alike in appearance. They looked like a group of conspirators. If Yusupov was right, and they were indeed conspirators, then they were Russia's last hope. If Rasputin had actually managed to negotiate peace with Germany in the winter of 1916, the Kerensky coup and later Bolshevik revolution might not have ever happened. There would have been no civil war, no great purge, no Stalin, and if you want to really sort of play with the thought experiment, maybe maybe no Second World War as well. Wow, okay, I had no idea. That wouldn't do for Yusupov. With an uncharacteristic decisiveness, he planned Rasputin's death and the end of any talk of peace with Germany. On the night of December 29th, 1916, a group of nobles who feared Rasputin's influence on Russia's royal family, including Yusupov, conspired to assassinate him. Having tricked Rasputin into believing he was his friend, Yusupov invited him to visit his home late one evening. The plan was to poison Rasputin with potassium cyanide. (laughs) Rasputin ate two cakes containing the poison, enough, apparently, to kill a dozen men. But what was weird, he showed absolutely no ill effects. He was then handed a glass of wine laced with the poison, which he drank with no evidence of distress. Now, man, he has some hearty constitution. So can you imagine... Because there's already the lore around this guy. Yeah, of course. He has a legend. He's a living legend that you can't kill him. Imagine being in that room. And this is not someone you can just, you you can't just kill him because he's beloved by the the royal family. Imagine what that would have been like to sit there and watch that happen. The fear that would have been growing inside of you. Crazy. So in consternation, Yusupov fetched a browning pistol from an adjoining room and then shot Rasputin in the chest. He fell to the floor, but when Yusupov leaned over him to examine the body, 
He grabbed the prince by the shoulders and spoke his name over and over again and wouldn't let go. He's been poisoned and now he's been shot and he's still alive. Yusupov broke free and ran. He was completely freaked out and terrified with, get this, Rasputin following on all fours, like (gasps) chasing after him. Oh my God, ew, oh God. Rasputin then made for the door and ran outside. One of the prince's accomplices pulled a gun and shot Rasputin several times. He fell onto a heap of snow. The gunshots attracted the attention of a local policeman who came to investigate. Yusupov was successful in getting rid of the policeman, but found, to his horror, that Rasputin was moving on the snow. He still wasn't dead. Oh, no. So, this is creepy, I think. It is, it is. It's like, my God. Yusupov ordered Rasputin's body to be carried back into the house and laid on the floor. They now, the group of them, set upon him with, in a frenzy and started beating him with a pipe. Okay, that's thuggy. All right, but they're just, they're desperate now, right? They've tried shooting him, it's not working. So now they're going to try and crush him. <sighs> Yusupov and his accomplices then stripped the body, tied it up, and threw it into the river. His body was discovered several days later. And the two main conspirators, Yusupov and Pavlovich, were exiled. But what was the final eerie element of this, there were signs that he had struggled to get out of the ropes that bound his body. So still kept ticking. He was uh, the energizer bunny of of, uh, mystics. He was like a zombie. He kept going and going. Almost, right? Yeah. As Yusupov recalled, this devil who was dying of poison, who had a bullet in his heart, must have been raised from the dead by the powers of evil. There was something appalling and monstrous in his diabolical refusal to die. The gory details quickly became the stuff of legend, and the beliefs many had of him were cemented in place, whether they were, you know, that he was a good guy or whether he was really bad. In reality, it took police three days to find his corpse, and the autopsy report found no traces of poison in his system. Oh, so they screwed it up. Well, maybe. It's also possible that... Well, I'll get into some theories of why that that may be in, in just a moment. Or nor there was nor was there any sign that he'd been alive when thrown in the water. He didn't have any water in his lungs. His cause of death was from being shot. Then that's what the song says. And so they shot him till he was dead. Therefore, if one discounts supernatural powers, which I'm inclined to do, the only explanation for the lack of effectiveness of the poison is that perhaps the chemical had been converted to an inactive form. And that's actually easier to do than you might think. Prior to its use, the potassium cyanide must have been stored, if this is the case, for a considerable time in air and sunlight. Under these conditions, it can react with carbon dioxide and decompose to cyan carbonate, an inert and harmless substance. That might explain why the poison didn't work. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's the devil or, or something else. Or an angel. Why then did the bullets fail to kill Rasputin? Some argue that the type of pistol available at the time, this browning, and the caliber of bullet that's used in that gun were very ineffective at producing lethal wounds. Indeed, in the early 1900s, deaths from gunshot, like to die from a gunshot, you were actually more likely to die from the infection 
that a wound from one of these guns, even in the First World War, caused than um, the actual, you know, wound itself. Like in the Civil War, think of the, the American Civil War, the, those guys often, maybe they'd have a leg blown off, but for it to actually hit a vital organ, it wasn't as common maybe as you would assume. So it's possible, again, that they just kept missing the parts of his body that, that you know, would kill him. Uh, I've, I've seen conflicting reports on the wounds themselves. One claims that the actual kill shot was to the head. Oh. But that doesn't explain how he kept freaking moving for so long afterwards. His um, ropes that they tied him up with when they threw him in the river and the, the fact that they became loose, well, perhaps rigor mortis played a part in it. Perhaps they weren't tied in haste. They didn't do a very good job tying them. Um, and then, you know, the currents or whatever eased them and made it look like he had been trying to get Can it. I ask you a question? Yes. Where's his body? Then they can just determine whether or not he got shot in the head that way. They did. They had it in the autopsy. They... They did. There was a bullet in his okay, head. Okay, good. Okay, got it. Yeah. So what's what's also spooky is, but that's what I'm saying. There was a bullet in his head, but how did he keep moving? Tons of people get shot in the head and continue to function. They're, well, right. There are tons of people, because it depends. It could just hit part that controls your yeah. left foot or something. I mean. Especially if it's not a high, like a caliber. Yeah. It's not like a shotgun blast that blows your head off, right? It's, that's right. Lots of people survive suicide attempts with um, handguns. Yes. Yes, you're very right. In fact, that's true. I don't want to get into the details of that, but there's... No, a, that's grim. We don't even... We don't go that grim. No, no. But there is... I, 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 I know this from some of my... The work, professional work I do. There is a wrong way to do it. And... Um, and that's really sad because you're often going to have a very painful life afterwards. All right. So what's also spooky, though, is that Rasputin is reported to have made a series of predictions to the Tsar involving their deaths and the destiny of the empire. Rasputin foretold his own death in a letter written to Nicholas in December of 1916. And he said, I feel that I shall leave life before January 1st. If it was your relations who have wrought my death, then none of your children will remain alive for more than two years. That's, by the way, the worst Russian accent of all time. But it worked. It worked. It wasn't that bad. Less than two years later, in July of 1918, uh-huh. Nicholas, Alexandra, and their four children were executed. Similarly, he also predicted that if the nobility murdered him, the whole empire would crumble, which it did. Absolutely. The letters do not appear until the 1920s, however, and the only person to vouch for their their authenticity was Rasputin's secretary, Aaron Simonovich. Rasputin's other predictions, including that the world would end in August 2013, were obviously bogus. Mm-hmm. Considering the plans he was making to secure peace in his country before he died, one has to wonder what may have happened if he had lived and succeeded. By killing Rasputin, his assassins not only eliminated their enemy, but may have also unwittingly altered world history forever. Now, that's the end of the main story, but I do have one thing that I have to tack on at the end of this. Sure. And it's the last sort of story of Rasputin, that, but it's from beyond the grave. Oh, I love spooky times. Yeah, but this is not spooky. Oh, I like spooky times. Since his death, the Rasputin penis legend has grown. I'm assuming you've never heard of this. Nope. And this is a real thing. Like, there are countless sites that talk about this thing. This is not me being silly and and gross. So this penis legend uh, began after being separated from his body and pickled in a jar. It was venerated, apparently, as a fertility talisman 
cured impotence, and used in secret rituals. The first phallic object believed to be Rasputin's penis turned out to be a sea cucumber. Oh my god. Oh my god. But it was discovered... <laughs> I'm going to have trouble keeping my... Me too. ...my shit together with this one. But but it was... They discovered, you know, this is not a human penis. This is a sea cucumber. A sea cucumber. But there was another less sea creature-like contender for the title. A 12-inch pickled phallus... Uh, which is now on display at the Museum of Erotica in St. Petersburg, is, according to its owner, Dr. Igor Kanaskin, the true mythical member of Rasputin. Legend says that in the 1920s, Rasputin's daughter, her name is Maria, she was actually a circus performer in the United States, discovered a group of women in Paris that had been venerating her father's penis. They believed it could bestow fertility, and they even handed out small pieces of it to those in need. Historian Douglas Smith writes in Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs. He writes and says the following. And then there's this business of Rasputin's member, supposedly cut off by Yusupov and then gathered up and saved by one of Yusupov's servants, a secret follower of the of the old man. Sometime later, according to this bizarre tale, the severed penis ended up in Paris, where a few of his surviving votaries kept it preserved in an icebox, taking it out only for their strange sacred rites. Yeah, from there, after further adventures, it made its way to the collection of Russia's first museum of erotica in Petersburg, a hideous hunk of graying flesh suspended in a jar of formaldehyde. According to multiple sources, the organ was cut off and taken to France by a fanatical follower. Maria eventually discovered it and took possession of it, but when she needed money in the 1970s, Maria supposedly sold it. As Smith notes, however, according to 1917 accounts by Dmitry Kosotorov, who performed the autopsy on Rasputin, his genitals were entirely intact and undamaged. So that piece of history might be are fake but this guy claims it's real and i just thought that was kind of a funny weird ending to this story and this man who held such sway over the whole world's fortunes has boiled down to having his phallus uh in formaldehyde in a erotica museum in st i'm just surprised because i always think of the russians as being very austere people that there actually is a museum of erotica in St. Petersburg. That to me is the weird. I don't. I'm not. Um, I'm not a history, a Russian history buff, nor am I a, an expert in their culture. But from what I understand, when communism fell, uh, there was this great awakening, and people who had been shackled sort of really went wild. Okay, you know, in a good way for the most part. Right. But maybe that came was born from that. You know. So that is the story of Rasputin, Riley. Right. There was more to that than I thought. Lots mm-hmm. more. So he was a bit more of a Grima worm tongue than I had yes. suspected. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was right in there. Interesting. Yep. This is not the story that I had expected, and I like being surprised. This is not heavy on this supernatural stuff. I mean, it's there. These predictions he made and his seeming invincibleness is interesting. It's also weird, though, that this literally he came from the lowest depths of society and within a few years had basically put himself at the top rung. It's not unusual. Ava Peron. Yeah. There's tons yeah. and tons and tons of that, right? I guess if you're looking at the actual society, yeah. there aren't many examples historically of that happening to empires. 
Ava Peron is Argentina, right? It's a different. No, but I'm just saying, you know, just, bad bad boy, bad girl rises. I guess. I, I guess the difference there, though, is that in Argentina, it's it wasn't a class based caste system like old world Europe. But was. but it kind of was a bit. It was a bit, but not to the same extent. No, no, it just no, wasn't. But I mean, you're just being a bitch. All I'm just trying to say is there's a parallel there. You're doing this because you want to sing that damn Madonna song. Well, look, Ivanka Trump, and suddenly she's first lady. Okay, great. Just sing the song. Get it what over What song? With. That Madonna song. You must love me? Ava Perone. Don't cry for me, Argentina? Don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is I'm not a diva. All through my golden days, I eat things that make me happy. Boop, boop, boop. Come on over and hear me say boop, 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 boop. I don't know what people are going to do. What are you you doing? Ignoring you. Okay, first of all, Madonna wasn't Evita. She was one of the Evitas. Did you know the first one in the United States was Patti LuPone? Put her on the map, that role. Put her on the map. She played Evita and she won a Tony for it, I believe. Oh. Anyway, um, that was a terrible version of that song. But all I'm saying is it's... Uh, Patti LuPone? I think she probably would have done a great she job. She did. Oh, my God. Talking to you is like talking to someone in a rest home. Oh, God. Ma, ma, it ain't World War II no more. Ma, it's Okay. Look, I brought you cookies. No, Ma, they're not bugs. They're cookies. Go ahead, Ma. Enjoy them. Ma, Ma, did you soil yourself? Are you done? All I was trying to say was the story of a very impoverished person rising to a position of incredible power and influence is not unusual. Well, of course. And, 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 and I mean, Hitler, right, that came just a few years later is that story as well. He was a loser. He was a nobody. He was a corporal in the First World War. I know. He wasn't even a, a commissioned officer. He was a very low rank. And this guy was a failed artist. He was he was at the bottom. He was at the bottom. And look, he almost took over the whole world. In doing research for a recent podcast, I came across information. I don't know much about Hitler because I really don't care. I do care, but I'm not interested in researching Hitler. But he was apparently a very joyless person. Like he wasn't a fun person. He was very depressed. He's very serious. He's not, he heavily medicated. You know, he's not somebody like, you know, hey, everybody, let's go to the fair. That's no. not Hitler. And I think that was very evident in his life. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, he was not a, a fun guy. No. Like, if you were going to have a party, you wouldn't put him at the top of the list. No, you would not. For, for a multitude of reasons. Dan, when you put together the list, don't invite that friend of yours, that guy. What, Hitler? He, he, he creeps me out. Which world leader would you like to invite to your... Uh, and don't inv- don't invite that Stalin guy. He smokes too much. No, you wouldn't want him either. He's a bully. Yeah. Invite that Churchill guy. He's okay. I don't know. He always falls asleep. Eh. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe Churchill would be okay. okay. And don't invite that Peron chick. She's a whore. All right. Well, that's my story. I, we're, we don't want to go on too much longer here. It's, we went uh, on really long yes. this time. Uh, well, there was a lot to tell. Uh, so that's our story. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, Riley, and good listener. We usually can have a debate, but... This is all facts, basically. Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, the way he died is interesting, mm-hmm. but there's not much. To, I mean, we, I think we've already kind of covered it. Who knows, right, how that happened. I know. And whether, and perhaps whether it was even embellished by the people that 
did it. So good listener, that is uh, this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, if you are enjoying listening to The Weird, please make sure that you are spreading the word of The Weird to everyone that you know and love. Uh, That is how we can grow this show. Uh, We really appreciate your your following us and uh and keeping up with us we love the international crowd if you you uh, want to ask us a question or if you have a show idea uh you can always find us on facebook and on instagram uh it's the weird podcast riley anything you want to add i have nothing to say other than thanks for joining us on this journey it's the best part of doing it knowing that you're listening okay 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 yeah okay good Good night everybody good night Don't cry for me, Argentina. (laughs) The truth is I'm not a diva. (laughs) All through my golden days, I eat things that make me happy. Boop, boop, boop. Come on over and hear me say boop, 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 boop. I don't know what people are going to do. <laughs>